The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. A long time ago, I sent Marvel Comics a pitch for a series of books called Web Spinners, Spider-Man Through the Decades. Clearly inspired, I say inspired, I mean ripped off, by the then-current In The Trades from DC Comics, Superman in the 40s, Batman in the 80s, that kind of thing, I felt that if anyone deserved this treatment, it was the amazing Spider-Man. They didn't take me up on it, but Aaron Henley mentioned just such a book in a post on Facebook, and this got the wheels turning again. What stories would I put in such a book? So far, I have covered the 60s and the 70s, so by the rules of linear time, it's the turn of the 1980s. The 1980s is actually an embarrassment of riches. Editor-in-chief Jim Shooter took over the running of Marvel Comics in the late 70s and initiated sweeping changes, putting more than a few noses out of joint and upending the line. The result was the most consistent period of time for Marvel Comics since the 1960s. For the first five years of the 1980s, Marvel was at the peak of its powers. Every single comic they published was, at worst, enjoyable and at best the most creative and innovative since each respective series began. The Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Thor, The Avengers, The Uncanny X-Men, Captain America, Iron Man, and newer books like Star Wars, Power Pack, Alpha Flight, and even Rom and Micronauts were solid entertainments. Even Marvel Team-Up was good. But what did this mean for Spider-Man, and indeed for my picks? Well, it makes it both brilliant and very difficult. In the early 1980s, Marvel Team-Up was still not essential, but under writer J.M. DeMathis and artist Kerry Gamble, it was arguably the best it had ever been, or ever would be. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, settled down, with great runs by Roger Stern and then Bill Mantlo. Stern's work would be so good he would mosey over to Amazing Spider-Man, and, along with artist John Romita Jr., would give us the best, most consistently good run in a long time. After him, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends would continue this winning streak, and Spectacular would give a new writer, Peter David, a chance. The decade would conclude with David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane breathing new artistic life into the character, and Jerry Conway returning. So, whittling down 10 to 12 issues for this was rock hard. What follows are stories that, again, show what life was like for Peter Parker in the 80s, but also give a good representative sample of the stories and events that shaped the era. In publication order, my first pick would be Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man issue 58 by Roger Stern and John Byrne. Ring Out the Old, Ring in the New is as almost a perfect 80s Spider-Man story as you could hope for, and a no-brainer for inclusion. It features everything that made this era great. One of the best writers to handle a character? Check. One of the best artists of the era? Check. A villain not really known for fighting Spider-Man? Check. 
A quick summation of the 80s supporting cast and status quo? Check. A story that is jam-packed with incident and foreshadowing yet still satisfying as a single issue? Check. Even a moderately happy ending? Check. Roger Stern's run on Spectacular Spider-Man preceded his more famous turn on The Amazing Spider-Man, but all the elements that made that run work are present and correct here, and really do help set up what Stern would do later. But more than any of that, this issue is just a fun and enjoyable read. Stern got more character scenes, dialogue and plot into one issue in 1981 than most writers do in six issues today. It's a masterclass in that you don't even notice the plot mechanics and Stern manoeuvring Peter into position for the next phase of his life. A wonderful issue to kick off the collection. Peter Parker didn't rest on its laurels after Stern jumped ship to write Amazing. Writer Bill Mantlo returned and delivered his best run on the character, with numerous storylines that were worthy additions to the canon. I have no idea what Mantlo was feeling, but perhaps it was that no one really cared about the other Spider-Man comics, as the feeling was amazing was where the action happened. So Mantlo perhaps thought, okay, I'll show you, and told complimentary but independent stories from Stern, with only a few small crossover moments. This meant readers could pick up either book, but weren't compelled to, but would still receive great stories. In Peter Parker, Mantlo has Spider-Man fall for the Black Cat, bring back Harry and Liz Osborne after an absence of years, have Doctor Octopus and the Owl engage in a brutal gang war, and have Peter engage in what he felt would be his final confrontation with Doc Ock. To set the comic apart from the others, artist Ed Hannigan was providing some of the best Spider-Man comics covers ever beautiful art deco masterpieces dripping with noirish colour and offbeat designs. Hannigan's covers popped off the shelves. The issue I've picked is issue number 64, entitled Cloak and Dagger. Not only does it feature the debut of two new characters who would last to this day, even being rewarded with their own TV show, but it also features Hannigan providing rare interior art as well as a magnificent cover. It's a good pick, as it showcases the darker turn the stories would take in the 80s, with Cloak and Dagger being essentially created from the omnipresent drugs issue promoted in the press of the day. It's a relatively grim tale for Spider-Man, a series that, let's be honest, never really shied away from grim and dark subject matter, despite the generally optimistic outlook of the main character. Solid characterization, an ambiguous adversary, and Spider-Man questioning his moral high ground when confronted with a situation that really has no easy answers makes this a good choice for inclusion. Roger Stern moved over to the amazing Spider-Man, taking with him a number of plot lines and characters, and making it really difficult to curate one of two representative issues from his run. See, every single issue Stern worked on is an example of the best the strip had been in years. Another problem is that Stern specialised in action-packed two-part stories in the earlier stages of his run, and all of them have merit. It could be his two-part Black Cat story from issues 226 and 227, or the magnificent Cobra and Mr Hyde fight from issues 231 and 232. However, the undisputed high point in it sea of high points was issues 229-230. Nothing can stop the juggernaut and to fight the unbeatable foe. Issue 229 sees Spider-Man contacted by Madam Web, telling Spidey that someone is out to kill her. It turns out that this is Black Tom and his lackey, the juggernaut. 
Juggernaut has located Madame Webb and found her wanting. With the mission of Bust, Juggernaut has tossed Webb aside and left her for dead, a thoroughly callous act that enrages Spider-Man. Issue 230, the issue selected for inclusion herein, is the conclusion, and is a knock-down, drag-out fight between Spider-Man and a foe he simply cannot beat, no matter how hard he tries. The Juggernaut's Jaws, or Terminator, or John Wick, in that it's a no-holds-barred battle with no respite or let-up. It's exhausting, and showcases our hero in the most dire of straits. Outmatched, outgunned, out of his league. In other words, Spider-Man at his very best. With great art by a young John Romita Jr., the issue, despite being low on subplots and supporting characters, demonstrates Peter Parker at his most tenacious, and how, in a moment of his lowest emotional lows, he can pull it out of the bag at the last moment to secure, if not a victory, then certainly not a defeat. He's beaten, he's bruised, but he's not out. Another way Stern helped shape the early 1980s was using the past to inform the future. Certain things never go away. Decisions from years ago come back when we least expect them, normally to haunt us. Such is the case in Amazing Spider-Man issue 238 in The Shadow of Evil's Past, again by Stern and Romita Jr., but this time joined by John Romita Sr. on inks. This gives the story a real connection to the 60s material. The themes are also driven home in the story, which, like all good Peter Parker stories, are a result of his own inaction. A bank robbery occurs, and in the resulting melee, Aunt May and Nathan Lebensky are almost killed. Spider-Man pursues, catching three of the robbers, but the fourth escapes into the sewers. Spider-Man decides he can't be arsed spending all day in a sewer chasing after a guy, and he leaves. A fatal mistake, as the robber stumbles across one of the hidden lures of Norman Osborn, the original Green Goblin. He, in turn, tells a mysterious figure who takes ownership, dyeing all the costumes and fashioning himself a new identity. The Hobgoblin. An obvious selection, mainly as this is the introduction of that rarity, a major Spider-Man villain created after his 60s heyday that has had substantial staying power. However, it's worth it for its artistic team and the place it holds in the history of the strip. The mystery of the Hobgoblin was huge for about five minutes. Speculation was rife and the letters page full of theories and opinions. Marvel, being Marvel, ultimately botched the reveal and the character. But for a short time in the mid-80s, this was a hot topic. The story also shows how frequently, albeit inadvertently, Peter Parker is his own worst enemy. If he'd continued his pursuit of the robber, none of this would ever have happened. Consequences follows action once again. Whilst this issue is technically yet another of Stern's stunning two-part stories, it stands alone enough to be worthy of inclusion. Once again, to fully encompass the publishing reach of the character of Spider-Man, we found ourselves having to include an issue of Marvel Team-Up. Fortunately, this isn't difficult in the 80s, as Team-Up was the best it ever would be, thanks to writer James DeMathis and artist Kerry Gamble. DeMathis would write Team-Up from issues 114 and be joined by Gamble from issue 119, and both had left by issue 133. But for nearly 20 issues, Team-Up was producing touching, heartfelt and frequently hilarious issues that for the first time made it a comic worth reading regularly. The issue chosen for selection is issue 131, one of the funnier issues, featuring Spider-Man teaming up with Leapfrog to fight Harley Quinn before Harley Quinn, the White Rabbit. 
Later writers would botch the Leapfrog's character, playing him purely for laughs. But here he's a sweet and pleasant kid, trying to use his father's old equipment for good, and perhaps atone for his old man's villainous ways. He had met Spider-Man a few times, and whilst Spidey has a soft spot for him, he's afraid he's going to get himself killed. The White Rabbit is an insane yet hilarious adversary. I'm not kidding when I say she's Harley before Harley, as she's pretty much that character, but sadly not as famous. The White Rabbit would never be played by Margot Robbie or Kaylee Kuwaku, but she was there just before Harley, and if Marvel or DC were ever interested in doing crossovers again, I'd love to see a pissed-off rabbit try to take Harley out for stealing her act. As with all of DeMathis' stories, and good Marvel stories generally, it's about the people, not the superheroics. Here we see DeMathis deal with the problems real people run into. Mounting bills, the pressures of life, unexpected problems that require a quick influx of cash, and how real people try to deal with these problems. Counter this with the affluent White Rabbit, rich, spoiled, entitled, and how she handles her issues. The superheroics tie in wonderfully with the mundane, a theme Marvel built its rep on. DeMathis would be rewarded with a truly great run on Spectacular Spider-Man, which we'll come to when we get to the 90s, but Kerry Gamel, one of the most underrated artists in comics, never got a proper shot at Spider-Man. Still, Humphrey Bogart will always have Paris, and we'll always have this great run, of which this issue is a wonderful example. There needs to be no explanation why I've selected Amazing Spider-Man 248, or at least no explanation to anyone who's read it. Issue 248 was split into two 11-page stories, both showcasing what makes Spider-Man great. My collection probably would include the first story, and he strikes like Thunderball, excellent though that is, rather the second story, The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. I've no desire to spoil the story for anyone who may not have read it, but suffice to say that Roger Stern and artists Ron Friend and Terry Austin pull out all the stops to create a story that didn't need 20 extra pages, didn't need a foil enhancement or 20 variant covers, and didn't need to sell a violent death for shock value to leave a lasting impression. Another easy pick, Amazing Spider-Man 252 from early 1984, was another seismic event in the ever-changing life of Peter Parker. Following The Secret Wars, a huge commercial, if not critical, success, Spider-Man returned in a brand spanking new suit, a nifty black and white number completely different to what he'd wore before. This was very controversial at the time, not least because Steve Ditko's outfit for Spider-Man is one of the most recognisable and effective in comics history. Its striking colour scheme, scarlet and dark blue, or scarlet and black if we adopt Ditko's original intent, with that embossed web pattern and intriguing underarm webbing is known across the world. That Spider-Man wore a full face mask with no eye slits, cheery grin or square jaw on show lent the character a mildly creepy vibe. To throw away that instant brand recognition was madness. And yet, in the 1980s, Marvel Comics was in one of the more fertile and creative periods, with nothing seemingly off-limits. Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter was looking at ways that the Secret Wars could be different and exciting, and leave an impact. For Spider-Man, Shooter decided Peter Parker would return with a new costume, and for readers, there would be added mystery of where the suit came from. 
costume was designed by Rick Leonardi and Mike Zeck and was a complete contrast to the Ditko original, being essentially a black body stocking with a large white spider that enveloped the chest and whose legs wrapped around the wearer's ribcage. It was scheduled to make its first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man 252, which saw Spider-Man return to New York in his natty new duds. This costume can generate its own webbing and can flow off Peter's body like unto a thing alive. It can also mimic whatever clothes Peter can visualise. The story itself is a slice-of-life drama, with Peter compartmentalising the events of the alien world and choosing life. Whether he chose a job, a career, a family or a big television isn't entirely clear. This is a nice, slow-paced issue, allowing the character to think about all he's been through and reflect before moving forward. It's a new era, both for the character and the comic, with a new writer and a new artist, reflected with the new costume and a new start. It's also a shoe-in for inclusion, as it's of huge importance going forward. Amazing Spider-Man 259 is another off-concept issue in which Spider-Man only briefly appears. It doesn't matter, though, as this is a heartfelt character-based issue, focusing on Mary Jane Watson and finally revealing her backstory. It is, in its own way, as tragic as Peter's, a life of ordinary people and problems, problems MJ is determined to not let bog her down as they did her family. In many ways, this issue, despite being pivotal in MJ's development, hasn't really been followed up on to any real degree. The story is straightforward. After revealing she knows Peter is Spider-Man, MJ tells Peter about her past, her abusive father, a dying mother, a sister trapped in the same cycle, and how she hid it all behind a happy-go-lucky party facade that has become so much of her nature as to barely be a facade anymore. Writer Tom DeFalco wisely chooses to not reveal exactly when MJ learned Peter's secret, would that other writers had followed his lead, and once again shows how invaluable a strong supporting cast can be. Speaking of a strong supporting cast, when writer Peter David made his debut on Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man, he made Spectacular genuinely worthwhile again after it had floundered for over a year. David didn't debut with the seminal storyline, The Death of Gene DeWolfe, but that's where it felt like a calling card, like Spectacular was once again going to be as important as the main series. It didn't last long. David's run was interrupted quite a lot, and never really settled on one artist. As such, it's not quite as memorable a calling card as perhaps the Gene DeWolfe story would have it. Still, he wrote a number of good issues, including this pick, 112, You Never Make a Sound, a Christmas story exploring loneliness and family. As you would expect for David, it's funny in places and nihilistic in others. David's soot-black sense of humour often clashes with the material he writes, and that's the case with a lot of his Spider-Man stories. I don't think of Peter Parker as having a dark sense of humour, rather a corny one. Nevertheless, this whimsical Christmas story with its Is Father Christmas Really Real ending is fun and shows off again how the character was at an impasse just before the marriage to Murray Jane. The art by Mark Beecham and Pat Redding is very cheesy. They never knowingly miss a chance to draw the women characters from behind and bent over. And David's social commentary is often heavy-handed. You have to tell your parents you're married to a white woman, a character says to an African-American man like it's a perfectly normal thing to say. But the issue is fun, funny, and possesses a lightness of touch, perfect for a Christmas story. 
Perhaps realising its time was up, Marvel Team-Up was cancelled in 1985 after 150 issues. This wasn't really a shock, as the Team-Up concept had ran its course, and, either by coincidence or design, all the major Team-Up comics from both major publishers, Marvel 2-in-1 and Team-Up from Marvel and DC Comics Presents and The Brave and the Bold from DC, had wrapped up by the mid-1980s. This left a hole in Marvel's publishing schedule, and just as nature abhors a vacuum, comics companies abhor losing money. And in April 1985, a brand new solo Spider-Man title, Web of Spider-Man, was launched. Web of Spider-Man issue 1 is therefore the pick for this collection. Overall, Web of never really amounted to anything contributing little of note to the overall Spider-Man mythos, outside of issues that crossed over into the other series. But it did at least start well. Till Death Do Us Part was written by Louise Simonson, with art by Greg LaRocque and Jim Mooney, and is included here due to its importance in wrapping up the Black Costume Saga. Or so we thought at the time. I like Louise Simonson's writing a lot, but this issue's dialogue isn't very good. But it's a decent conclusion to the black costume arc, when we all thought Peter had rid himself of this once and for all. Even the ending, with the alien saving Peter and caressing his cheek, is nice, although it is slightly undercut by later developments. The final caption box is unintentionally funny. It states Peter will think about this moment for the rest of his life, but I don't think he's ever thought about it. Next up for inclusion, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 139, which came out in mid-1988 and was part of writer Jerry Conway's return to the title he launched in 1976, and his second extended run on Spider-Man after his seminal run in the early 1970s. The artist was Sal Buscema, previously considered a journeyman artist, who here was showing what he was capable of when he was given time to pencil and ink, and wasn't overworked after drawing every other comic Marvel was publishing. Conway's second run saw him also write Web of Spider-Man, and he initiated a semi-crossover style to both series, with them essentially working as one title, perhaps to compensate for the perceived notion that only the amazing Spider-Man mattered. It's one of the few times Web of Spider-Man was a must-buy. One of the best and longest storylines he worked on was the Tombstone Saga, an ongoing sequence of stories that filled in the background of one of the longest-serving yet underserved supporting characters in the series, Robbie Robertson. Conway weaved a decade-spanning narrative detailing Tombstone and Robbie's involvement over many years, and he did it well. But I pinked this issue as further demonstration that the supporting cast are the Spider-Man strip's secret weapons, capable of generating many enjoyable stories, as well as introducing new wrinkles into time-worn tales. I conclude the collection with another no-brainer. Amazing Spider-Man issue 300 by David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane. McFarlane was the first of the superstar artists that would dominate the 90s, but when Todd McFarlane arrived on The Amazing Spider-Man with issue 298, it was a seismic shift. For years, Spider-Man had been trapped in an artistic rut, not in any bad way, but the character had been following the same template laid down primarily by John Romita for 22 years. McFarlane came along and blew the bloody doors off, redefining the character for the next decade. 
In addition to the importance of McFarlane, this issue would also introduce a major new villain, Venom, and add a new wrinkle to the Black Costume Saga. Venom would go on to be one of the major stars of 90s Marvel comics. His hulking, monstrous appearance, his simplistic motivations, and his ability to give Spider-Man a run for his money all playing a part in his popularity. He's even morphed into an anti-hero as the decade rolled on. Looking back on it now, it's staggering to look at his first appearance here and see how low-key it is. This issue also establishes that Peter and Mary Jane are now married, another important change to the book. As I mentioned earlier, Spider-Man was another one of those periodic ruts in the mid-1980s, where clearly something had to be done to refresh the character. And in this case, that was marriage. We can debate the merits and demerits of this, but it's important to the strip and the character. And the only reason I wouldn't include the actual marriage issue is, well, because it's shit. It's easy to pick holes in Amazing Spider-Man 300. It doesn't prevent it from being a lot of fun and a good anniversary issue. There's humour, some cheesecake, lots of action, and McFarlane is at the top of his game. Panel layouts, storytelling and narrative are all really good, and he and Michelini make a pretty good team, making this the perfect issue with which to end the book and the 1980s. Next time, the 1990s. <laughs> Okay, our email today is from Matt Prather. It's been a little while. It has, Matt. Don't do that again. Dear Andrew, hello, Matt. Dropping a quick missive to let you know how much I enjoyed your recent episodes. Fun stuff all round. Wonderful. I missed a couple of episodes with the move to the new website and have just caught up. I have recently acquired the new Man of Steel hardbacks that DC is putting out and have really enjoyed the walk down memory lane. At first, I was a little bothered by having to start all over again with my Superman journey back then. I mean, he went from moving planets to explaining how his clothes were always clean. I got over it, enjoyed the burn run quite a bit, and found myself nodding a lot through your episode. I am sure that I appeared quite the fool. I'm sure that people watching you, Matt, just thought you were enjoying yourself and whatever you were listening to. And I hope that is indeed the case. I've been buying those hardbacks as well. Um, been selling the original issues as I went along. Got quite a lot of money for the Bloodsport issue. Not as much as I would have had now had I waited until the movie came out. But, you know, what can you do? Matt continues, love all of your Spider-Man coverage. Even you talking about some of the stuff I wasn't super excited about. The McFarlane run lost a lot of my interest as it went on. Yeah, you and me both, mate. With the exception of the Sinister Six stories, I didn't read a lot of Eric Larson's run back then, but found his cartoony style charming, and have been back and picked up a lot of it. So when you are ready, I will take that journey with you. I experienced a heart attack earlier this year. Oh, I do hope you're okay. I may not be ready for She-Hulk transformations. What a performance. Oh, just as an aside, with regards to She-Wolf. Lee Goldberg, who was the showrunner and co-writer of many of the episodes, actually got in touch with me after that episode, which was remarkably cool and has never happened to me before, apart from um, when John Wesley Shipp got in touch with Michael Bailey and I after we did a Flash episode, where he was just delightful, as John Wesley Shipp apparently is. And there was that one time Gina Lee Nolan retweeted that I did an episode about Sheena. 
I don't know that she actually listened to it like Lee Goldberg and John Wesley Shipp did, but it was nice anyway. But yeah, Lee Goldberg was delightful and he sent me links to other stuff that he's worked on and copies of scripts so I could see script to screen. And he just just absolutely brilliant. Just, you know, you, you sometimes forget when you toss this stuff out into the ether that anyone can listen to it. But the fact that the creator of the show listened to an episode I did about that show, a show I didn't think anyone but me remembered, um, was just a joy. Just absolutely fantastic. So thank you to Lee Goldberg for that. Matt concludes, Knight Rider is a part of the greatest American hero getting cancelled, and I cannot forgive it, even when evil mechanical vehicles voiced by Eeyore can't shake my resolve. Okay, maybe just an episode or two. Did Knight Rider kill the greatest American hero? Did it? Because my, I thought, in America, anyway, this isn't true over here, obviously, but in America, I thought Knight Rider was up against Dallas and is one of the few shows to survive against Dallas. So surely Dallas killed the greatest American hero, not Knight Rider. I mean, I could be wrong about that. I don't know the vagaries of American television scheduling. You may be in a completely different area where that wasn't the case. I don't know whatever thanks for sharing matt prather no thank you for emailing matt and um very very sorry to hear you had a heart attack hope you're doing okay um rest easy mate listen to all my shows all the back catalogs out there anyway that's it for this time you will have noticed that these three episodes came in quick succession because i had wanted to do another daily release over the summer however that didn't happen because life got in the way but the 90s and the noughties are coming soon. The things that got in the way primarily are the 90s and the noughties are really, really difficult to pick. Much harder than the 60s, 70s and 80s. Because we're not really into single-issue stories anymore. But we'll get into that more next time. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. Take care, and I'll see you all again real soon. Goodbye.